When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This is what's known in the trade as an early drop. At least I think that's what they call it. Um, the podcast is out earlier than normal, is what I'm saying. Uh, the reason being, uh, it's going to be mainly about the, uh, the British Open, and I wanted to release it in good time before the tournament began, which is Monday. Very historic event, the British Open. Started in 1985. Of course, it took a hiatus from 2004 to 2021. Quite an extended hiatus, 17 years, which is back on the calendar. And in this podcast, I'm going to be doing my own personal countdown of the top 10 British Open finals of all time. That will come later. We also have our jokes amnesty. So listeners to the the podcast have been sending in their jokes. Um, Most of them are rotten, it's got to be said, but we're going to read them out anyway, (laughs) in keeping with uh, the new section that I introduced, Snooker Jokes. So that'll be coming later. Uh, But first, uh, we have a couple of just follow-up emails about recent events. So Adam in Shrewsbury. He says, uh, I wanted to say it was great to see snooker back in China again. I haven't, I get this, I haven't watched much snooker from China uh, as I've only really rekindled my interest in the sport after a 15-year or so hiatus in April 2022, almost as long as the British Open, Adam. He said, anyway, it was brilliant to see the Rocket back to winning ways after a fairly barren, by his standards, end to last season. I was actually rooting for Luca, just because it would have been amazing for him to answer the odd voice who said he might struggle to build on his success at the Crucible. To be fair, from what I've seen and heard from him in interviews, of which there have been a few recently, I can't see it would bother him in any way. However, the main reason for my email was to herald the return of Hawkeye-like table visualisations on the TV coverage. I assume this was provided by the host broadcast in China and not WST or Eurosport, but it was nice to see after it seemed to be abandoned by the BBC a good number of years back. It perhaps doesn't add as much as it does to other sports, such as tennis and cricket, but it's still nice to see the player's eye view of a tricky shot or exactly what angle there is on the blue to make the split. I guess the only thing I found odd was when there was a long pot and it placed lines between the balls and the pocket and showed the distances involved in millimetres. Don't get me wrong, I work in the metric system in almost everything I do. That is, with the exception of snooker, so it was a little bit tricky to get my head around. I'd love to see more of these visualisations in the blue ribbon events, as I'm sure there are other situations where it could be useful to the viewer, but I guess like all things, it comes down to cost to the broadcasters. Anyway, keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Adam. Yes, I mean, we haven't seen that, as you say, for years. Uh, it's something that they have in China. It is useful. I like to see, like, when someone snookered the shaded area, you know, exactly what they can and can't see. But it seems to me, if you've got that technology, which they do in China, I mean, well, I'd, surely it should be used for ball replacements. Um, now, I can't swear that it, that it is or it isn't, because we in this tournament, we didn't actually see what the the mark was looking at but normally they look at the the freeze frame screen uh, but that would obviously be a massive help to everybody if they could use that to, to, to replace balls after a miss
Kelly Barker. Now, Kelly's been to the qualifying that's been on recently. She said, I've just had two great days at the International Championship Qualifiers at Ponds Forge. I wanted to say what fantastic value it is and massively enjoyable. All day access was just £10 and you could sit where you wanted with four tables to choose from or sit at the back and keep an eye on them all. With the cost of living, etc., you could watch practically all the top players across the week for £60, which is amazing, really. On day one, I saw Stephen Hendry and Jimmy White. Ryan Day made a 147, with about seven of us watching that table, and every minute was thoroughly enjoyable. I find it a bit of a shame that crowds were so sparse, no more than about 25 people in any one time. Was enough done to promote these qualifiers. I'll definitely be making more effort to go to more of them in the future. Finally, it was good to catch up with Ryan Watterson while I was there. We even had a chat about this podcast, which is a firm favourite of ours every week, although we're not fully convinced with the joke section. Keep up the great work as always. Well, we'll see how you feel this week, Kelly, when we've uh, we unleashed the public on it, you see? So we'll see how funny they are. Uh, see, how, see how you like those, them apples. Uh, in, t- <laughs> in terms of the qualifiers, I mean, I think there may still be a slight stigma with the fact that it's qualifying. You know, if, you, if you've got, you know, £30, £40 in your pocket... And you want to go to snooker. I think most people would still go to a tournament. It is the diehards that go to the qualifiers. I think it's good that there were crowds available this week. But despite the players that you mentioned, it's never going to be a sellout, is it? I don't think. Um, just the nature of it, really. But I agree, it's good value. And you get to see lots of different players. It's just that, I guess, it's, for some people, it's like, OK, well, you know, who are they going to play tomorrow? They've won this match. Who are they play tomorrow? Oh, they don't play for another two months sort of thing. It's 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 like sort of... There's just that stigma where it doesn't feel like you're at a tournament, maybe, and there's no sort of hoopla, there's no TV cameras as such, and you know it's not, it doesn't feel like a sort of snooker event that you'd see on TV. But as I agree with you, they can be very entertaining, and of course they're live on Discovery Plus as well. So anyway, on to my countdown, my personal countdown of the best ten British Open finals. Now it is personal, so if there's one in here that you think should be and it isn't, please don't get angry. It's all just a bit of fun. Um, so the event began in 1985, so I reckon there have been 22 finals because there's that 17-year gap. So by my reckoning, 22 finals. We could only pick 10, so most have not made the cut. There's three criteria, really, when considering the great finals. The first is quality of play, and typically that, that does lean towards big breaks, but not always that. Uh, but but you know, we, we look at finals certainly with a lot of breaks and, and associate that with being high quality. The second is drama, and typically that means close. Obviously, the closer matches tend to be more dramatic. And the third is historical significance. So was there something about the final that, in a wider sense within snooker, made it significant? And and the first one that I've chosen, definitely on the latter point, um, qualifies. It was actually the first British Open final in 1985. Stephen and Francisco of South Africa beat Kirk Stevens of Canada 12-9. But it's worth talking about that uh, that first British Open. In the 1980s, the circuit started to flourish. We know that. that became much more interesting snooker on television. The BBC had their events, but ITV as well started to build up a portfolio. They'd shown quite a few tournaments prior to that. But they wanted their own prestigious event, and this was it. And it, it's crucial to note that this was played just before the World Championship. So it was regarded as the real sort of prestigious warm-up event to the World Championships, about six weeks before the Crucible. It carried the highest first prize in snooker history. That's a fact. £50,000 was the first prize uh, that year, and that was the highest in any tournament in snooker history. It was superseded, of course, by the World Championship, where Dennis Taylor won 60000 uh, a week later. 
but uh, it was more than for any tournament that we'd seen up to that point. Fifty thousand. To comparison, that season's UK champion took away twenty thousand, so it was more than double the UK championship. Uh, so it was at that point the richest snooker tournament ever played in terms of the winners' prize. The final itself, Silvino Francisco won twelve nine. It got over 15 million viewers, 15.3 million, I believe. And that places it third, <laughs> third on the all-time list of most-watched matches on British television in terms of peak audience. So that's the, the most that were tuned in at any point, obviously, the afternoon. In those days, there was very little live snooker on... Sorry, very, not live snooker, that's a, that's a Freudian slip. There was very little live football on British television. That Sunday afternoon slot, and this was the era of four television channels... That Sunday afternoon slot for ITV was golden. So the, f- the first two sessions of the final was played uh, Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening. It concluded on that Sunday afternoon. Frankly, there wasn't a lot else on. I mean, that's just a fact. So if you're indoors watching TV, chances are you'd be watching the snooker. And you had a very interesting final. It was the 21st ranking tournament ever staged. The first final between two non-British players. So you had a South African and Canadian. There was something a little bit exotic about it. Kirk Stevens was a very popular player. It was only the year before he'd made the maximum at the Masters in, in his white suit. Um, he was sort of a young, good-looking player, very popular uh, in general with, with younger fans, with female fans. There was something about him that was exciting. And Francisco himself was a very different sort of character, obviously from South Africa. Um, you know, he was been around a while. He got to the quarterfinals of the World Championship uh, three years earlier. But he was sort of still making his way, really. And this was his big breakthrough, his big day. And as I say, he won 12-9. Now, the standard of play wasn't, by sort of modern sort of metrics, I suppose, uh, that high. Francisco's highest break was 65, OK? So, you know, to win a final of that length now with a high break of 65 wouldn't be regarded as very likely, actually. Kirk Stevens did have a century. But, of course, there was plenty of drama off the table as well. It wasn't just <laughs> the match... Because it turned out later that uh, Francisco had been convinced that Kirk Stevens had been on drugs. And he confronted him in the toilets. He got quite angry. Word of this got through to a journalist who, after the tournament, went round to Francisco's house, um, offering to tell his side of the story. Francisco spoke to him what he thought was off the record, but he was actually being secretly taped. And this appeared on the front page of uh, was the Daily Star newspaper, um, and it all went to hell for everybody. Francisco got fined £6,000 and docked two ranking points. Now, in those days, you got six ranking points for winning a tournament. So to be docked two was a big deal uh, for bringing the game into disrepute. Of course, later in 1985, Kirk Stevens actually admitted to being addicted to cocaine. So on appeal, Francisco actually got the points and the money back. All a bit unsavoury, but in the 1980s when snooker was was kind of literally a soap opera in terms of the interest and, and the, the status it held in Britain, that was a massive, massive final, as evidenced by the VM figures, as evidenced by the fallout, and uh, neither career kind of ever hit the heights again. They, neither of them were in a, a major final again, and Kirk, you know, got very ill. Uh, his life was in danger because of his addiction. Francisco later, he actually found sort of trouble himself with the law, etc., etc., all in the past. But that final, that was the first one that launched it all and still very memorable. And while I talk about these two non-British players, it's an oversight of mine that I should last, I meant last week to mention Perry Manns, who passed away. He won the Masters in 
1979, he'd been runner-up in the World Championship, 1978. Another South African like Silvino Francisco. Um, he was not a, a player who sort of fits the sort of modern description. We, we think now of the, the heavy scorers. He wasn't that. He never made a century in a tournament play on the tour. But he was a great potter. It was all about potting. Um, he was known for that. He could pot them from anywhere. Just wasn't so, so sort of concerned about position. But the fact is he won the Masters and he got to the World Final and uh, he passed away at the age of 82. Meant to mention him uh, last week, but happy to do so this week. So that's number 10 in the countdown, 1985. Uh, number 9, now this was uh, another non-British winner, Bob Chapron, 1990. And again, this final, by modern standards, perhaps not the highest we've ever seen. But again, a point of great interest because of the nature of how it panned out and who he beat. He beat Alex Higgins in the final. Now, this was the first year that the British Open reverted to the uh, FA Cup-style draw that, of course, it's, it's still got today. And uh, so I suppose, in a way, people weren't that surprised that uh, it ended up in a strange, a strange final, a final people wouldn't have predicted. Alex Higgins at the time had had a bit of a resurgence. He'd, uh, the previous year, won the Irish Masters, despite breaking his ankle not so long before. Beat Stephen Hendry in the final at Goffs, 9-8. So Alex Higgins was playing some good stuff. And um, Bob Chapron at the time, you know, he was a sort of middle-ranking player, not necessarily um, ever sort of tipped for greatness, put it that way. And he should have lost, really. Alain Robidoux, his fellow Canadian, uh, he, he needed four snookers against him in the last 16 round did, did Chapron it was the signing frame he needed four snookers and he got them obviously uh, and Robert do I, I think from my memory threw his cue on the floor that might be I might be remembering it wrong but he definitely didn't take it well at the end he was devastated as you would be uh, but Chapron from that moment had that sort of reprieve man syndrome he beat some good players in the tournament he beat Mike Hallett he beat Neil Folds uh in the semis, he beat Robert Marshall. It was a bit of an unlikely lineup in the semi-finals. Bob Chapron beat Robert Marshall, and Alex Higgins beat Steve James. Steve James was a top player at the time, but uh, some of the bigger names had sort of departed by the wayside by then. Uh, so, and by the way, the, the random draw: Darren Morgan that year, right? So he, <laughs> he drew in the first round. Well, the last sixty-four, Stephen Hendry, thanks a lot, beat him five-four. During the second round, Steve Davis. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks a lot for that. Thanks for the FA Cup draw. Davis beat him 5-4. But anyway, we got to the final. Alex Higgins, Bob Chapron. Uh, it reverted to best in 19. It had been three sessions up to that point. But by then, ITV had got football back. So the Sunday afternoon slot wasn't so uh, available to them. Anyway, Chapron did make a century, but only one of the half century. Higgins didn't make any half centuries. It wasn't... You know, classic free-flowing snooker, but it was exciting. And Chapron won 10-8. And of course, then, not so long after that, it was the World Cup, the World Team Cup. And uh, it was quite a, a memorable event for both. Canada won it. So Chapron with uh, Cliff Thorburn uh, and Alain Robidoux won that tournament. But the other side of the coin, that's where Alex Higgins threatened to have Dennis Taylor shot. They were playing in the same team at the time. Dennis was captain, Northern Ireland. Alex threatened to home shot. It was overheard by John Spencer, the WPSA chairman, and Higgins ended up getting banned for a season. 
uh, World Championship. He did that rambling retirement speech. He punched the press officer. It was all very unsavoury. Quite, un- uh, uh, I mean, a lot of people look back at that with sort of a, a sort of fondness. But actually, Higgins was spiralling out of control. He could still play good stuff, as evidenced by getting to the final of the British Open. But off the table, things not so great. And uh, again, that was um, his last hurrah. Really, it was his last ranking final, Higgins. But it was Bob Chapron, what, still one of the most surprising winners ever of a ranking event. I mean, you, you look more recently, obviously Jordan Brown winning one, the little Irishman. And to Fang Zhengyi, arguably more surprising, because he just came out of nowhere. But uh, Chapron at the time, that would have been one of the more surprising wins for sure. Number eight in the countdown of the best British Open finals, or the most memorable certainly ever, 1986. Now, this was Steve Davis winning, which at that time was no surprise. Steve Davis winning the uh, a ranking event, any event. But really, it just underlined his dominance. Now, of course, he didn't. He wasn't world champion, and he didn't win the world championship. Joe Johnson did. Dennis Taylor won it the year before, of course. But he was winning basically everything else at that time. He's, he'd won the UK championship with that comeback against Willie Thorne earlier in the season. And uh, just was con- just continuing his sort of dominance in general. Uh, he'd won a tournament. Uh, he'd won a tournament in China. He'd won a tournament in Canada that year. He was just winning tournaments. That's what he did. He won the Grand Prix, and later in 1986, he won the UK Championship again for the fifth time. That particular British Open, he beat Woody Thorne, who won the Mercantile Classic the year before. Uh, he had a lot of sort of half centuries, nine half centuries plus a century. Scored heavily, Davis, twelve uh, seven, and. Of course, it was a rematch from that UK final, which after which Willie was never quite the same. Um, Finally, missing the blue to go 14-8 in front. Um, 12-7, pretty close, but Davis dominated the final session. He won three of the last four frames. So, sort of pulled away at the death. And really, that just underlined his complete dominance of the era. OK, there were a couple of events he didn't win, but he won that one, and he would have won... A lot of those new ranking events that came on the circuit in the 80s, obviously the Grand Prix, there was the International that was played at Stoke, obviously the Mercantile, uh, and, and the UK Championship become established from the mid-80s as a ranking event as well. And Steve was pretty much always going to be in the final or winning or winning those tournaments. So in some ways, that final, regardless of the standard of play, which was high, it had a, a historical significance in that it underlined the dominance that Henry had not Hendry, <laughs> we'll come to him later, that Davis had of that era. As you can tell, there's no script this week. <laughs> I'm doing it off the top of my head. We move on to, where are we now, number seven in the list, and this is 1999. Now, there were two British Opens that year. One was in April, one was in September. I've chosen the one in April, and it featured friend of the podcast, Fergal O'Brien, against Anthony Hamilton. Again, a sort of surprising lineup. By the way, by this point, the FA Cup draw had been abandoned, so they didn't get there through... Um, you know, sort of random draw. They got there through a very strict sort of seeding system. And uh, in the semi-finals, Fergal beat uh, John Higgins. He'd beaten already Peter Ebden. He'd beaten Ken Doherty. Um, he'd beaten Gary Wilkinson. So he'd beaten some of the top players of the time. Anthony Hamilton was a player who, you know, been around a while and was well regarded. And again, he didn't have an easy draw. He beat Marco Fu. He beat Paul Hunter. He beat Mark Williams. He beat Stephen Hendry. So he beat you know some some really tough players to come through. And in fact, all of those four matches were in deciders. So it's almost like 
sort of you feel maybe his name's on the trophy. He survived all those close matches. Is he going to do it? Well, the final started, and it looked like he would. He made breaks of 110 and 134 in the first two frames. So you think, wow, this guy, uh, he's going to win. He's playing great. Fergal, though, well, he got his teeth into things. He actually won five frames on the black during the during the final. Um, so all the close frames, basically, were won by Fergal. He made a century as well, five half centuries, and he won 9-7. And uh, it was his great day. He, he'd spoken about... He'd been stubbed for the Irish Masters, I think, um, that season, even though he had a great claim to be in it as one of the wild cards. And he made it a point that day. Okay, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna go and win a tournament and basically sh- shove it up him. I'm gonna say, ah, this you inspire me. He didn't quite do that when he won it, but um, he served as motivation, and that's very important in any sport. And snooker no different to have that sort of burning fire within you. And Fergal knows a lot about that, and uh, it was a great win. Of course, he went on a couple of years later to come very close to winning the Masters. Paul Hunter made a great comeback against him, but that was his great day didn't have long to be defending champion, as I say. He was only about six months. And then I remember they put him on 10 in the morning. Sort of, you know, not a great slot, grave, graveyard slot in reverse, really, too early. The defending champ, and he got knocked out, and it was all uh, not, not not a very pleasant business, actually. He didn't, he didn't uh, think much of how he'd been treated. But it was uh, a terrific um, day for him, and uh, one I'm sure he still looks back on with great fondness. So that's... Uh, that's number seven. So we've got one more before we take our break for the jokes amnesty. And, uh, well, as uh, convention dictates, it's number six on the countdown. This is 1992. And this is Jimmy White beating James Watson on 10-7. Watson R made uh, the final three years running, actually, from this point. And, of course, that was the tournament where he made his maximum against Tony Drago um, in the last 16. And what an extraordinary thing that was, because... He'd heard that his father had been shot in Thailand, went and played the match, made the maximum, came off the match, and found out that his father had passed away. So it was an extraordinary story, actually. Uh, he got to the final, but Jimmy... I think there's a case to be made, and people may disagree, and they're welcome to, but I think there's a case to be made that Jimmy White, pound for pound, was the best player in 1992 as a calendar year, because we think of seasons. But in the calendar year, I think Jimmy possibly, you could make a case, was the best player. He won... In 1992, four ranking events and was in another final. So he won the European Open, then he won the British Open. Later in the year, he won the Grand Prix and the UK Championship, two massive BBC events. But, of course, the one he didn't win is the one people remember, the World Championship against Stephen Hendry. Now, he turned up at that having won two ranking events. The footage of David Vine saying this, Jimmy had said in the press prior to the tournament, I'll have to go sick not to win it. Well, of course... In the end, he was kind. Of, he kind of was sick because he was. He was, as we know, he was twelve six and fourteen eight up to Stephen Hendry, and lost eighteen fourteen. Um, so that's the one people remember. But they should also remember how well he played. It was, this was at the peak of his powers. This is when he was at his best, his real prime period. He beat uh, in the British Open, uh, you know, some top names. I mean, real top names: Cliff Thorburn, uh, Mike Hallett, Darren Morgan, Terry Griffiths, and, the, and in the semis, Steve Davis nine eight. So this was, you know, a proper run to the final up against Watanar, who uh, was very much had emerged at that point as, you know, a leading force. And Jimmy looked like he was going to make it a very early night. He went 7-0 up, <laughs> best of 19. So 7-0, you think, OK, he basically just destroyed him. But 
Jimmy White fans know it's never quite that simple. Back came Watamar. He won the next five frames, so 7-5. And from then on, it was a bit of a scramble. Jimmy just held him off. Late on, actually, the penultimate frame, he made a century, 113. And uh, just managed to get a higher gear towards the end. Didn't panic. Um, and this is the thing with long matches. You can have these spells, these purple patches. He had won it already, by the way, the, the British Open, 987, which very nearly made the cut. He beat Noel Folds in the final 13-9. But I thought 92 better reflected his general form at the time. As I say, that year, he was arguably the best player in the world. But not at the World Championship, of course, and that's what people are going to remember. We're going to take a pause here for the jokes amnesty. Now, uh, if you're new to the podcast or, or you've been listening recent weeks, you'll know that I've introduced this joke section. My own jokes, but... Uh, one of them made it onto the 900, I noticed. Neil, it involved Neil, uh, who's the, which snooker plays the best at origami, Neil Folds. That made it onto the 900, <laughs> which I was watching. But anyway, so yeah, so listeners have been sending their own. They're of a mixed quality. Now, I have omitted some that are a little, um, a little blue, frankly. But, uh, I've put, I've collated, uh, as many as I could find, basically. There may be some missing, but, uh, let's see what you think of these. So Lee Isaacs. Quite like this one, actually, Lee. He said, Ronnie O'Sullivan went to the doctor complaining of lethargy, low energy and general fatigue. The doctor asked Ronnie what he had for breakfast. Ronnie said, two blues, three reds and a black. The doctor then asked Ronnie what he had for lunch. He said, 12 reds, three pinks, a brown, a yellow, four blues and three blacks. Finally, the doctor inquired as to what Ronnie ate for his dinner. He said, three reds, a yellow, two pinks and a couple of blacks. That's the problem, said the doctor. You're not getting enough greens. That's quite good, isn't he? He made an effort with that. He made an effort with that. That's not just, uh, that's not just, um, you know, what a one-liner. Kevin Newey. Here we go. Kevin Newey. What can you find lurking in the corner of a snooker table? The answer, Jaws. Now, I don't like to criticise the, the listeners, but that needs a little work, Kevin, I think. That needs a little work. Um, it could be reworked into a better joke, I think. Uh, it says me. <laughs> Some of the ones I've come out with. Anyway, Ina Butler, why was the snooker player reluctant to go to social gatherings in France? I'll read that again because this is a good joke, I think. He said, why was the snooker player reluctant to go to social gatherings in France? Answer, he was afraid of the dreaded double kiss. That's quite clever, I think. It's quite clever. Whether it's funny is another matter, but it's quite clever. Dave Tyndall, friend of the podcast, he sent three uh, of mixed quality, I think it's fair to say. Number one, what would be the spiciest ever game of snooker? Okay, what would be the spiciest ever game of snooker? Jackson Sage against Dill Werbeneck. Uh, okay. <laughs> Number two, why did they choose to... Here's a contemporary one, by the way. Why did they choose to film Faulty Towers in London rather than Sheffield? Because when the cameras arrived in Sheffield, there was a sign-up saying Crew Sybil Faulty. Now, <laughs> there's a number of things about this. One, the more you look at it, the less sense it makes. It kind of makes no sense at all. Um, second, there'll be people who, under the age of, I don't know, 50, who have no idea what you're talking about. But anyway, it's a, it's a solid construction. Uh, and number three, and this is a little bit uh, salty, but anyway, number three, why was the music on the new film so rubbish? Why was the music on the new... F- sorry, why was the music on the new snooker film so rubbish? Answer, because it was scored by the World Snooker Tour. Now, I believe that's a reference, a satirical reference, current reference to uh, the live scoring site, which, as we know, is no good. 
Russell Wellham, why did the angry twin end up in the opposite pocket? Because he was a cross double. <laughs> I quite like that one, Russell, I've got to be honest. Uh, he carries on. Last night I played a great shot to get out of a tricky snooker, but got home to an em- empty sofa. It was a three-cushion escape. <laughs> okay. Again, don't don't dwell too much on the logic of these, but just 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 sort of accept them. Uh, we carry on. By the way, over at the World Snooker Podcast, they're not losing any sleep. <laughs> anyway, Mark Watson, sleep, he's sleeping soundly. I think it's fair to say. Uh, we carry on. The snooker club is not going to act on members' comments about the standard of the equipment under the table. The most popular opinion was indecipherable. I'm not sure what that says about the rest. Put some effort in, Russell. That was quite a clever one. Number, uh, the next one, James Cook. What have a snooker table and the Incredible Hulk got in common? Answer, they're both green. Now, <laughs> again, a little more work required, I think, there. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure that really works, does it? All to your respect, Jones. But anyway, it's not for me to say. And finally, Brian Campbell. What do you call a Scottish snooker player? Chalk McHugh. <laughs> the only thing about that is, how many people do you know called Chalk? <laughs> but yeah, I suppose if your surname is McHugh and you're a snooker player, Chalk McHugh, it makes some sort of sense. Uh, what do you call a bad Russian snooker player? In off the red. No, okay. Okay. So that's, they're the jokes sent in by listeners. Um, I would say keep sending them, but I don't really want any more. We may, we may retire that section now. I think it may, it may have outstayed its welcome. Uh, but thank you for all your contributions, even, even though I was critical of most of them. Uh, we'll continue with the countdown of the greatest British Open finals of all time. So we're at number five. And, uh, well, number five, it's, it probably ticked all the boxes. Certainly, uh, sound of the play, drama, but also historical significance. It's num- 1995, John Higgins against Ronnie O'Sullivan. The thing about this, they were both 19 years of age, both teenagers. It's pretty much unthinkable now that you would have the final of a ranking event between two teenagers. Of course, they both already won tournaments, so they weren't flashes in the pan by any means. But, you know, now we've got some talented new players, but the idea that they would both be in a ranking, the same ranking final is just unthinkable. Uh, but these two, of course, very special players. Higgins won 9-6. Um, he made a couple of centuries. Ronnie made one. There were... Another 11 half centuries between them. It was very free-flowing. Um, and, of course, their rivalry continues to this day. We just saw them play each other in Shanghai. Uh, this was uh, quite a closely fought match. I mean, 9-6 didn't sound... It, it's in that sort of ballpark where it's not quite, you know, going to a decider. But equally, it's not a, a walk in the park for anybody. O'Sullivan actually, was actually 2 up. Um, it was very close all the way. But Higgins, uh, he was 5-3 at the end of the first session. So he did take that little lead and then you know it was a good final session Higgins just strong at the end but it was more the significance than playing each other really um, and actually John Higgins at this point he won his first ranking event which was the uh, the Grand Prix earlier that season he'd taken just a year more than he- than uh, O'Sullivan to break through as a ranking event winner but he won he'd won in between the International Open so by winning the British Open he became the first teenager to win three ranking events in the same season. And that record stood for a couple of decades until, um, who was it who equaled it? Ding Junhui, I think. Um, no, he hadn't done it in the same season, Ding. That's, that's completely wrong. 
he don't, no, he, he didn't do it in the same season, but he, he did win three while still a teenager. But Higgins did it. This is, uh, not the, again, not the, not the most um, polished way of describing things. But Higgins did it in the same season. Ding later did it. It was about ten years later actually. He later did it over the course of just over a year. Anyway, John Higgins won nine six, and of course uh, Ronnie um, had already won the UK Championship. In fact, he'd won the British Open the year before. So he already won this tournament. But, uh, and that was the end of Watanar's run of three finals, by the way. But um, it was interesting after that, because in the next sort of five years, John Higgins was certainly more consistent. And he, he looked like he would become, if any of them were going to become the next dominant force, it would be John Higgins. Mark Williams wins the British Open, by the way, in 97. And um, he becomes another top player at the time. Um over time, of course, in the span of their career, Ronnie O'Sullivan has won a lot more. But at that point, it looked like Higgins might be the one to replace Stephen Hendry. And that final had a lot to do with it because there was rightly a lot of interest and excitement around O'Sullivan. But Higgins as well, as a teenager, had broken through and become, well, pretty deadly in all areas. And of course, he didn't have the kind of, put it that way, the soap opera that, that followed Ronnie O'Sullivan around. Next on our list, number four in the countdown of the greatest British Open finals of all time is 1991. Stephen Hendry beat Gary Wilkinson 10-9. Wilkinson had led 6-3. And, you know, in those days to beat Hendry, it was as rare as Haley's Comet. I mean, Stephen Hendry, that season, it had an extraordinary season. He'd won, obviously, the World Championship the previous year to be the youngest ever world champion. And then he won <laughs> the first four uh, ranking tournaments of the season. The Grand Prix, the Asian Open, the Dubai Classic, the UK Championship. He'd been in the final of the, the Mercantile Classic as well. So he'd got to five finals already um, that season. And the British Open, he was yet another one. But as I say, he was in trouble. Gary Wilkinson, who was a terrific player, Wilkinson. I mean, these days people kind of know him from... Uh, he works for World Snooker Talk. Quite often he'll be on the front desk when you go and get your pass at a tournament. There he is. Uh, but he'd become... You know, a top player for sure, and contended in the latter stages of the tournaments. This was his only ranking final. Couldn't close it out, and this is so often the case. We've seen this against when when players come up against the real top players. It's getting over the line that's the issue. And Hendry hit back, and of course, when he hit back, he hit back hard. Uh, late on in that final, he had a, a century, and it wasn't a match of great breaks. He only had four of the half centuries, but. His potting and his way of getting into frames really carried him through. And he actually went 9-8 up. Wilkinson, to his credit, made a 91 break for 9 each. But Hendry got the job done in the decider, 10-9. Gary Wilkinson did win a big ITV final at the end of the year, the World Match Play. It wasn't a ranking event, but it was a huge tournament. But Stephen Hendry, that season, when you think about it, he won five ranking titles and got to another final. So he was in six finals from only eight events. Now, again, he didn't win the World Championship. John Parrott did. So that was the one he wanted. But that's, again, that, that strike rate to be in six of the eight finals. So what's that? 75% of all the ranking finals that season. Stephen Hendry was in. He won five. That was a record for a long time. Uh, Mark Selby and Ding Jun Wee equaled it. Ronnie O'Sullivan equaled it. In the end, Judd Trump beat it with six. But, of course, by then there were far more tournaments with over double the amount it's not taken anything away from Trump but the fact is Hendry at that point was just uh, an extraordinarily dominant force and uh, 
it's worth reflecting maybe before we get to uh, the sort of the denouement, the last three, some of the records in this British Open. Because Hendry and John Higgins shared the record for the most title victories, four each. There's only three players who've won multiple... Three other players have won multiple titles, Jimmy White, Steve Davis and Mark Williams. In terms of finals, Stephen Hendry was in six British Open finals, John Higgins five. Hendry's won the most matches in the tournament. Of course, this skews towards those older players because the modern players, most of them have only played in the last two British Opens. Um, maybe some of the ones in the early 2000s, but there was a long gap. So someone like Judd Trump, for example, would only have played in the last two when, when it was revived. So Hendry's still top of the centuries list, most centuries in the tournament. But a total of, uh, I'll make it nine maximums in the British Open. Hendry made one in the final, 1999, that second one that year, against Peter Ebden. And that was the first maximum break in a ranking final. So if you dig deep into sort of snooker stats, Stephen Hendry actually still, he's top of some of those lists. We associate Ronnie O'Sullivan quite rightly as being top of the, the really memorable ones, but not all of them. But 1998, so as I say, Stephen Hendry and John Higgins the two most dominant players in this tournament they met in the final now this certainly was significant so this is number three because John Higgins at that point this was the the last ranking event before the World Championship and there was a set of circumstances Stephen Hendry had been number one since 1990 and looked like he would frankly never kind of leave his perch he was so dominant even though Ken Doherty had beaten him in the World Final the previous year but there was a set of circumstances by which Higgins could become number one. He needed to win the British Open and the World Championship, and he needed Stephen Henry to lose in the first round of the World Championship. And all of those things happen. So we'll, we'll talk about this final in a moment, but when they get to the Crucible, Henry had drawn his, drawn his old foe, Jimmy White. Jimmy dropped out the top 16. It was kind of meant to be in the draw. Jimmy beat him 10-4. So Higgins knew if he went on and won the tournament, he become world number one, and he did. He beat Ken Doherty in the final, 18-12. But in those days, it really was a big deal because you, your ranking applied for the whole season. So wherever you went that year, you were known as world number one. But certainly for Higgins to um, usurp Hendry after all that time, that must have been a massive, must have felt like a massive achievement for him. Um, and it felt like a sort of shifting of the sands, as I say, when he beat O'Sullivan in that final, uh, what, three years earlier. It felt like John Higgins was going to become kind of the... If anyone was going to be the new Stephen Hendry, it was going to be him. And, uh, well, it didn't quite happen like that, but uh, it was a, an important sort of moment in the sport. Higgins had beaten uh, Mark Williams in the semi-finals and Stephen Hendry had beaten Ken Doherty. So it was a very high-quality uh, lineup. It wasn't one of those tournaments where they all went out. Far from it, actually. Here's the thing about the final. Higgins was never in front. <laughs> Hendry was always either a couple of frames or it was a nip and tuck, sort of the odd frame in front. Um, Higgins had uh, more of the sort of breaks, but it was very nip and tuck. Hendry led by eight frames to seven. And then John Higgins made 102 and 85 to win the last two. So he did it in a Hendry-esque way. That's the sort of way Stephen Hendry would close out a match with two big breaks. Of course, John Higgins had the other side of the game, which he still has to this day. 25 years on now, a quarter of a century ago, all this. He has the tactical game, which maybe Hendry didn't uh, employ so much. But it felt like an important moment because, as I say, they went to the Crucible with Higgins able to usurp Hendry. And he had, he'd had a really good season as well. He, he was becoming 
the player most likely to take Henry's mantle, and indeed he did. He won the World Championship, but, it, but that British Open was part of it. If he hadn't won that, it wouldn't have happened. And a very exciting match, but it wasn't one of those deciders that you know was all nip and tuck and edgy. It was okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna win it how you would win it with a big break, and that's exactly what happened. So we move on to number two in the countdown of the Great British Open Finals, and this features Stephen Hendry, slightly happier Stephen Hendry. 2003, he beat Ronnie O'Sullivan 9-6. This was in Brighton, and there was a slight backstory to this because it was about 18 months after they'd had their little uh, disagreement. Well, it wasn't a disagreement. It was Ronnie O'Sullivan sort of shooting his mouth off at the Crucible, talking about sending Stephen Hendry back to his sad little life, all that stuff before their semi-final, which completely backfired because Hendry beat him. But that didn't end it. Stephen Hendry was, frankly, um, not happy about what had been said and refused to speak to O'Sullivan. They, they'd been kind of friendly, but he didn't speak to him, um, basically, for that 18 months. So it all came to a head at this final. What a fantastic final this was. In terms of quality, sheer quality, you know, the best of them all. It, had, it was best of 17 affair. There were six century breaks made and at one stage were five in a row so looking at the frame scores um, O'Sullivan went in front early on 2-1 then Hendry had a century O'Sullivan had two Hendry had another one O'Sullivan had another one so five centuries in as many frames fantastic uh, standard Hendry had another one late on it was one of those matches I think he was just determined to win Um, he was determined to prove his point and I suppose in a sort of happier way, afterwards they did, I believe, have a conversation. That was the start of the thaw and, and all the sort of acrimony went away after that. But um, it's almost like you had to put him in his place again just to end it. I think O'Sullivan at that point you know, was a bit upset that he'd caused all this trouble and was happy to speak to Hendry again and, and everything was fine again. But um, it was a fantastic final. But of course, what made it more significant as well, was that this was shortly after Hendry's queue had been broken by the baggage handlers at Heathrow. So the old queue he'd won all those tournaments with had been broken, and his confidence must, must have been affected. So to win a tournament playing this well, really playing the sort of snooker that he played through the 90s, suggested that maybe the queue wasn't going to be such an issue. It wasn't quite a last hurrah. He did win tournaments after this, but it was probably his last really, really strong performance in a final. Um, in fact, he only won one more ranking event after that, the Malta Cup in 2005. So that was, I suppose you, you could call it a last hurrah. It was really who he beat and how well he played to beat him. O'Sullivan, obviously, at that point, had been become world champion already and was winning tournaments and was certainly more sort of um, reflective of the, snook, of the future snooker compared to Stephen Hendry at that point. But uh, it was a great final and a great performance by Hendry. And it leaves us with our last British Open final. Number one in the countdown of the greatest British Open finals ever. It can only be 1996. Nigel Bond beating John Higgins by nine frames to eight. Now, this uh, was Nigel Bond's only ranking success. Of course, he'd been in the world final. He won a couple of other big invitation events. But in terms of ranking tournaments, he'd had a few near misses. I mean, this was the era where you would always run into, you know, another really top player. So he'd lost... To Hendry in that world final, he lost to Hendry in the Grand Prix. John Parrott in the Thailand Classic. He later lost to Peter Ebden in the Thailand Open final. But also he's running into the O'Sullivan's, the Higginses, the Williams in, in tournaments. Ken Doherty at the time. You know, 
James Watson, all these sort of players. So Higgins would have been the favourite um, in this final. Of course, uh, 96, he was uh, the defending champion. He'd beaten Ronnie O'Sullivan in the semi-finals. He'd beaten John Parrott in the tournament as well. Um, Nigel Bond had beaten Stephen Hendry along the way. He'd beaten Peter Ebden. But it all came down, of course, to the best of 17 frame final. When Nigel Bond made the early running, he actually led 3-0. He led 4-1. Higgins, though, pegged him back to 4-4 going into the evening. And then it was uh, very much a nip-and-tuck affair until we get to the final uh, frame. So, 8-all. Great atmosphere down at Plymouth, worth saying. It's on YouTube. And the Plymouth Pavilions deserves a mention here. It's a terrific venue. It's an area of the country not best served with tournaments now. But they've always got big crowds. Because Andy Hicks was a sort of local. He was always uh, a player that everybody hoped would do well. Uh, Ken Doherty beat him 5-4 in the last 32 that year. But we get down to the last red, and Nigel Bond needs a snooker. And against John Higgins, that's no tall order. It's no, uh, no small thing at all. In fact, it's the opposite of no tall order. It's a tall order. Um, but he got it, and he ended up winning on the black. It was a great battle. Willie Thorne and Phil Yates on commentary really did it justice as well. You could hear how they're having to raise their voices over the, over the crowd. And Nigel Bond pulled off a very unlikely victory to get a snooker in the deciding frame of a ranking event final against you know a, a great sort of tactician in John Higgins and to win 9-8. It's a moment, the highlight of his career, and the highlight, ultimately, of this whole British Open. Uh, so that could only be the number one. So just to we do the countdown again, this time without the jokes. So number 10, 985, Sylvina Francisco. Number 9, 1990, Bob Chapron. Number 8, 1986, Steve Davis. Number 7, uh, 1999, Fergal O'Brien. Number 6, 1992, Jimmy White. Number 5, uh, 1995, John Higgins. Number 4, 1991, Stephen Hendry. Number 3, 1998, John Higgins. Number 2, 2003, Stephen Hendry. And number 1, 1996, Nigel Bond. People will be out there saying, that. what about this one? What about that one? Fine, you do your list. This is mine. I had to make decisions, and these are the ones I made. Great memories of the tournament, and of course it came back. I mean, last year's final nearly made the cut. That was a good match, Ryan Day, Mark Allen. We tend to have bias, I think, actually, in these things, more towards our memories of what the tournament was rather than what it is now. But it's a terrific event now. And uh, in the UK, of course, you can watch it live on ITV4 all week. And there's going to be a lot happening. and some great matches, actually, early on. Luca Brussel, Ding Junhui is in the first round. This FA Cup draw has thrown up some, some terrific contests. So looking forward to it. It's, um, it's uh, a tournament where, uh, you know, there's a lot happening. There's four tables that play all day long. And uh, hopefully, if people are coming along to Cheltenham, they will enjoy what they see. Um, and maybe, if we do this next year, this countdown... This year's final will make it onto the list. Uh, it's on Eurosport outside the UK and the various other platforms. Check out the World Snooker Tour website uh, for details. But that's it. So uh, hopefully I've done the British Open some sort of justice. And uh, remember, uh, next week, so it'll be, well, just just over a week's time, it will be this podcast's eighth birthday. And we've been asking, we've had a couple already, but been asking people to send in a fantasy quarterfinal lineup. So an eight man, eight man or eight player uh, lineup, uh, your own criteria. So chosen for your own reasons. What would what would you like to see as eight players in fantasy quarterfinals from any era, 
Uh, they have to be snooker players, otherwise it gets a bit ridiculous. Um, so any snooker players you want, send them in and we'll read those out on our anniversary edition. But for now, uh, thanks for listening. We're proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out their other podcasts. You can email us, snookersingpodcast at mail.com. Snookersingpodcast at mail.com. But as we always say, until next time, enjoy the British Open. And it is for now. Goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. <laughs>